0: G'day mate, welcome to episode 44 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In this episode, we're looking at how to prepare yourself to race in hot conditions when it is currently winter where you live. Also looking at heart rate monitors. Are they an essential training tool and how to maximize their usage? And finally, we're taking a look at support networks and how they're important for your over or performance let's get into it welcome to the exponential performance podcast join sports scientist and performance coach matty graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are g'day mate welcome To the exponential performance podcast episode number 44 now apologies for all of those people who have noticed I have been a little absent lately from the podcast and there hasn't been an episode put out for a while here in Wanaka New Zealand it is getting into the full swing of the winter season And for me that means a lot of work for uh, the New Zealand Winter Olympic snow sport team that I do strength and conditioning work with. So I've been flat out um, in the gym with those guys doing their pre-season training as well as a lot of endurance athletes starting to think seriously about summer again. So that is why I haven't been able to get a podcast together. I've just been super busy doing other things. But today... We are going to crack into things. First of all, we're going to have a look at the performance temple. We're going to carry on with our segment around that. And today we're going to be looking at support networks and why they are so important for athletes. And then I'm going to be tackling two subjects. About The first one about heart rate monitors. And do you actually need a heart rate monitor? Are they an essential training tool? And then finally we're going to look at how to prepare yourself for racing in hot conditions when you are in a cold environment so if you're in the New Zealand winter what do you have to do to get ready if you're going to the northern hemisphere to train or to to race sorry in the northern hemisphere summer so without further ado let's crack into the performance temple support network section Now, support network. If you imagine the performance temple, the bottom step is health and well-being. The next step up is support networks. And it's on top of those two steps that the four pillars of the performance temple sit. If you want to get more of a visual on that, head on over to the Exponential Performance Coaching website. And you can download your free introductory copy to the performance temple and that's what I'm reading off right now so support networks when an athlete lines up at the start line of a race it is likely that they have not got there completely on their own all high-performance programs are built on quality support networks and if you are serious about improving your performance then developing a support network of people around you to help facilitate your progression is critical you will likely already have a bit of a support network without even knowing it. The next step is to work on formalising it so you can maximise it. While athlete support networks will differ between individuals depending on their needs, having experts such as a coach, physiotherapist, nutritionist, strength coach, sports science advisor, mechanic, technical advisor, doctor and mental skills trainer are all people who will be able to help fast track your performance and give you support when it is required. When establishing your support network it's vital that you assess your needs. Getting some outside help with this can be very useful to provide some perspective. And then seek out individuals that are able to meet your needs in those specific areas. So here's a bit of an outline of some of the different areas that you may look to include in your support network. Immediate family. No matter what your goal is, it's vital that you have the support of your immediate family. To achieve your goal, you're going to have to put in some hard work, make some sacrifices, and this becomes almost impossible without the support of those closest to you. Spouses, parents children and friends need to be on board and informed, so you can train at your best physiotherapist or massage therapist just like a formula one race car has a team of mechanics keeping it running in good condition a physio or massage therapist is vital to keep an athlete's body in one piece most athletes base their body maintenance on the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff approach only climb on the massage table when something is sore. Taking a more proactive approach with weekly or fortnightly body work is important for keeping everything running well so that you don't get any big issues or ongoing problems. Nutritionist Getting good advice on nutrition and having someone to provide feedback and be accountable to is one aspect that many athletes can get large benefits from. Nutrition is critical to support so many aspects of your training. This is covered more in depth in the nutrition pillar. Doctor. Hopefully you're not going to be spending too much time in the doctor's office. But if you are there, you need to have full confidence in your doctor. In my experience, many general practitioners lack the specific skills, knowledge and experience to effectively treat athletes. Find a sports specific doctor, or at least a doctor that has experience working with athletes, will make treating any issues that crop up much faster and easier to get a quality answer. Mental skills trainer. Many athletes think that working with a sports psychologist or mental skills trainer is only for those who have issues. Others think that you either have it or you don't when it comes to mental skills. Both of these common beliefs lead to many athletes neglecting this aspect of their performance and never reaching their full potential because of that. Having an expert who can guide you through this type of training can be very, very valuable no matter what level you're at. Strength coach or personal trainer. Having an expert to help with your functional strength training and refining your technique is invaluable. A strength, a specific strength and conditioning coach should be your first bet, but you may have to settle for a personal trainer. While personal trainers are a dime a dozen these days, good ones are very hard to come by. Look for one who has experience working with athletes and sport specific conditioning. Sport science support. There are big gains to be made through good application of sports science principles. Having an expert that can help you improve aspects of your performance based on research can help you shortcut a lot of trial and error and take a lot of the guesswork out of your training. And finally, the coach. Depending on the experience and expertise of your coach, they may fill none. Or many of the roles that we've just talked about it is also important that your coach is also in contact with the others in your support network so they can keep their finger on the pulse so to speak the flow of information and cooperation between these people is important so all of their individual work and support is aligned in the same direction as an athlete it often comes down to you coordinate this network all of these people will need your permission to share your information between each other but it is important for your success most importantly your coach needs to be in contact with these other other people so they are able to maximize your training program this way even if the contact between the coach and the athlete is impeded the most important updates get to the coach for example there's no point a physiotherapist instructing an athlete to rest or train in a certain way due to an injury and then the coach planning something completely different that is counterproductive to the athlete for some reason many athletes don't like to reveal everything to their coach i have experienced this firsthand with athletes hiding injuries and illness if your support network has direct contact with each other then they're able to give you the best support. Remember everyone in your support network has your best interests at heart and wants you to succeed. And then following that there is a wee diagram of the athlete and the coach and two-way information or communication between them but then also communication With the athlete with their physio doctor strength and conditioner nutritionist mental skills trainer sports scientist and then also communication between all of those people and the coach as well feeding back that information to the coach so that they have a good grasp of what's going on so support networks is something like i said is something that's often overlooked but if you look at any elite athlete then they always have a really, really tight support network around them. Whether that be just friends and family and supporters, or their coach, then their physio and their doctor, whatever it might be. The key thing is to start to formalize your support network a little bit and start to try and get that share of information going. It's really, really beneficial for a coach to have communication with your physio, for example, or your physio simply to send your notes through to your coach uh, after a treatment session so that they get an update from the physio about where you are. And it's not that an athlete may always hide information from their coach, but they may not see it relevant to tell them, or the physio may have used language that the athlete doesn't understand. But sending the notes through to the coach, the coach may have a better understanding of the anatomy and the physiology of it all and and are able to understand it. So just have a bit of a think right now. What is your support network like at the moment? Do you have people supporting you? Do those people communicate? Do you communicate the information from them to uh, the other people? How does that all seem to work? Does it work well? If it does, then good. You might just want to refine things. If it's not working well or there's no support network in place, it's definitely something worth looking at because at the bottom of the performance temple, this is your base, remember. This is what everything sits upon. And next week when we start talking about the different pillars, those pillars can only be as strong and as stable as the bases. If you start on a crummy base, things are going to start falling to to pieces pretty quickly. So next week, we're going to start looking at the first of the four pillars of the performance temple, and we're going to start with nutrition. So tune in next week to hear more about that. But let's move on to heart rate monitors. So this is a question I get almost every time I start working with a new athlete. Uh, If they don't have a heart rate monitor, it is, do I need to get a heart rate monitor for my training to be effective? And I think they always expect me to say, yes, you have to get a heart rate monitor for this to be effective. But the thing is, is that it's not always an essential training tool. And here's a couple of reasons why. And then I want to talk about how you can get the most out of your heart rate monitor because hopefully that becomes a little clearer as we go. So the first thing is I'd say is no, a heart rate monitor is not an essential training tool. It's a very good training tool if it's used correctly, but I wouldn't say it's an essential training tool. For the reason is, is that we have been training without heart rate monitors a lot longer than we have been training with them think back in history all of the great endurance athletes that there have been we have you know they have been training for so long without heart rate monitors and sometimes without even wrist watches some of our great Ironman athletes have been known not even to wear a watch and and they are still able to smash it and the records are still similar to that what they are today so I don't think heart rate monitors have made a huge impact on on training it's definitely changed the way we train and the metrics that we get but you can still train effectively without them the second thing i'd say is that most people who have a heart rate monitor don't maximize uh, the usage of it or even get any functional use out of it and all it ends up becoming is an expensive wristwatch or a very expensive cycle computer so the key thing is to know is that just having a heart rate monitor will not make you better and i came across some really interesting stats so heart rate monitors come in under a category called wearables okay wearables things that you wear it includes a bunch of different things like uh, eyewear uh, body cameras watches uh, tokens clip-on jewelry that sort of thing wristbands but under fitness and activity sports trackers it was i found this fascinating in 2016 61 million wearable devices wearable fitness devices were sold worldwide that's a huge number and it is a very lucrative business in 2016 fitness and activity trackers and wearables were worth billion dollars that's unbelievable 3.8 billion dollars and that there is uh projected to rise with fitness trackers uh increasing to 187 million in 2020 the number of these sold worldwide and the estimate is to increase to six billion dollars a year in 2020 so Wearables and fitness trackers are a big topic at the moment. It used to be sort of two companies that did heart rate monitors that endurance athletes used, that being Polar and Garmin. Now it's blowing out and there's so many different um, brands out there that endurance athletes are getting their hands on, uh, which is cool. Great to have a diverse market. But just having one of these things doesn't necessarily make you better. The interesting thing about these 61 million fitness and activity sports trackers sold in 2016 is that the majority of people don't know how to maximize their usage when it comes to maximizing fitness goals. Okay, so they go out and buy one of these things. They put it on their wrist. They start it when they go out for their session. They stop it when they get back. They look and say, oh, look at my average heart rate over this session or I got up to this speed if it's a GPS. But they don't actually use the information to help progress their goals. So here are some critical points to get the most out of your heart rate monitor. So the key thing with a heart rate monitor is monitoring your training intensity. This is how hard you train. Now with heart rate monitors the whole idea is to set your training zones up so that you know how hard to train to get specific physiological adaptations depending on what the aim of your training session is. So if your coach says they want you to go out for a long ride in zone 2 the aim is to develop your aerobic endurance capacity. So how do you know that you're in zone 2? Well you could go out by feel or what they call RPE Rating of Perceived Exertion Now you could go out without a heart rate monitor and and just go out on feel and aim to feel like you're riding at a steady pace that you could talk to your neighbour if you're riding with them and hold a conversation that there is around zone 2 or you could keep an eye on your heart rate monitor When your heart rate was between X and X beats, you knew that you were in the zone. So often when you get a heart rate monitor, it will ask you to put in your age. And what it does with that age is it takes it and it uses a calculation to estimate your training zones based on the general population. And usually the calculation that is used is 220 minus your age. And that's the assumption that heart rate, maximal heart rate decreases with age. And it generally holds true with the general population. But when it comes to people who do regular physical activity or train specifically for something, this calculation no longer holds true. So you could be heading around thinking that you're in these specific zones, but you're nowhere near them. There's many different ways to calculate your training zones but one of the best ways to do it is with field testing and I talk all about this in an article that I wrote over at the Exponential Performance Coaching blog and it compares different ways of calculating heart rate training zones from the gold standard of lactate threshold testing through to field testing through to uh, age based calculations. So if you want to have a look at that article and see the differences between different ways of calculating your heart rate training zones, I'll put a link to that in the show notes over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com 44 for episode 44. There'll be a link to that article. But a long story short, the best way that you can get out there and get some really accurate heart rate training zones without having to fork out money for uh, lab testing is to do a field test just go out do a field test and i've talked about these before and and use those use that number there to base your heart rate training zones off Don't just go in and use the factory age predicted settings because your heart rate zones are going to be way out. If you do that, you're probably better off just going out there and going by feel, to be honest. So the first key point with your heart rate monitor getting the most out of it is getting your zones set up correctly so that you can monitor your training intensity. Second thing that a heart rate monitor is really really good for is monitoring your training load. If you didn't have a heart rate monitor uh, and a program such as Training Peaks to upload the data to, how would you gauge how much training you're doing? Well, what you'd probably do is you just probably look at how much time you've spent training. This week I did a 15 hour week, last week I did a seven hour week. This 15-hour week must be better than the 7-hour week because it's longer. Now, with a heart rate monitor and a program such as Training Peaks, what it allows you to do is take all of the data from your training sessions, and this is where it becomes quite a powerful tool. Take the data from your training sessions and then track your training load and then using some algorithms, track your... Uh, fitness improvements over time. Now I won't go into too much about how that works but the key thing for you as an athlete what you need to know and how you maximise the usage of your heart rate monitor is to make sure that when you start your training session you've got your heart rate monitor strap on if it's a strap around the chest or your heart rate monitor around your wrist if it's a wrist based heart rate um, measurement make sure you've got it on and make sure you start it make sure you stop it at the end of the session and then upload your data to whatever data management uh, program you're using now I know that sounds really really simple but it's amazing how many people uh, miss Sessions or miss a week because their heart rate monitors flat. They don't get around to charging it or they forget their strap or they or whatever it might be They don't bother putting it on the key thing is is if you want to make the most of that four to six to eight hundred dollars unit that you've got on your wrist or on your handlebars is you need to make sure that you capture the data of your training sessions and upload it so that it can be used now a lot of people won't go past uploading it to Strava okay <laughs> they'll upload it to Strava but they won't upload it to training peaks upload it to training peaks first because that is where we can use it that's where we can start building a picture over time of your training load how you can handle the training how much you can take before you start to get fatigued or break down or get sick if the data's there we can use it if it's not there well then we can only but guess and that heart rate monitor that you spent all that money on becomes a little bit of a waste of money so two key things monitor your training intensity by getting those zones set up second of all monitor that training load by making sure you capture the data and then upload it to your training peaks account now one other question I always get with heart rate monitors, especially the new ones coming out, is the training effect or the recovery times on heart rate monitors. Some heart rate monitors now, you'll go out for your session, you'll come back and, it, and the heart rate monitor says that you need four days rest to recover from the small ride that you just did. Or on the flip side, you go out for an absolute epic epic session you're out there all day and you get back uh, and your watch says that you need no recovery time before you're ready to go again and the thing I always get asked is should you be taking notice of these suggested recovery times on your heart rate monitor now there's a couple of there's a couple of things that we need to understand I guess is that It'll often be really high over the first few sessions as in you'll need it'll say that you need four days to recover from an easy run and that's because the metric is a learnt metric. It takes all of your sessions into account and it puts them into an algorithm and then spits out this number at the end. When you've only done one or two training sessions it doesn't know. Uh, how much you can handle it's kind of like your training zones it needs to have it needs time to gather data to make predictions now with the recovery time you may go out and do a big session but the key thing to remember is if your watch says you need two days to recover what that's talking about is to recover fully in this theoretical world that your watch is programmed in And remember, full recovery is not always the goal in training. Okay, I'll say that again. Full recovery between training sessions is not always the goal in training. Often we focus on a cumulative load over the week, or even over two or three weeks, with the idea of progressively fatiguing the body so that when we have a recovery phase or a recovery week, That is when we want the body to recover. We don't necessarily want the body to recover between Monday's session and Tuesday's session. I'll often plan sessions for athletes where I will purposely make them fatigued on Saturday, for example. And on Sunday, I'll put a fatigued hill ride in their program. And I know that training session won't be super high quality in terms of intensity. But what I want them to do is go out and ride on tired legs. However, you would never want to do that if the Sunday session was meant to be a super high quality interval session. So your watch is programmed in a certain way. It doesn't know what your aims of your training are. And all it's doing is taking the numbers from your training session and then putting those numbers into an algorithm and that it's been programmed for and then spits out this magical number. So would you take much notice of it? I would say not really. Now there are functions on some heart rate monitors that take into account the training effect on. The aerobic and the anaerobic energy system this is kind of related to those training zones how much time you spent in each training zone and often what it'll do is it'll pump out a training effect on say a scale of one to five uh, this five being high one being low how effective was your training and you may find that your training often isn't very effective based on this model as in you're getting a lot of ones or twos or threes This training effect score is kind of based on EPOC. And if you can remember back to episode 40, we talked about EPOC. And it's just to remind you that stands for Excess Post-Exercise Oxygen Consumption. And if you can remember back to the EPOC uh, podcast, we talked about how the longer or the harder a session is, the greater the EPOC is. And this is kind of based on this training effect as well in that the longer a training session is or the harder or the combination of those two as in a moderately hard intensity for a long period of time is going to give you a massive training effect. Now I think the key thing to remember here is that I signed off the Epoch podcast saying that Epoch's great in all of that but it's not the be all and end all. We're not just looking to create a big epoch. And the same thing goes with this training effect. You may not be getting um, a big training effect because you're doing technique sessions or neuromuscular sessions or strength sessions or active recovery sessions. So sure, the training effect might be low, but you might be taking all of the goals and all the aims of your training sessions even though... The training effect on the watch is saying that it's a low effect okay so just remember that the training effect is not the be-all and end-all and that the recovery indicator of how much time you need to recover again doesn't know what the aims of your training block are and it's looking at the time to full recovery between sessions and remember, full recovery between sessions is not always the goal of training. So there you have it. Is a heart rate monitor an essential training tool? No. You can train effectively without it. Is it a, a helpful training tool? Yes. If you use it correctly, the key things that you need to know are getting your zone set up so that you can monitor your training intensity effectively. And you need to make sure that you record your data and upload it to a data management system such as Training Peaks, so that you can monitor your training load. If you're doing those two things well, you are going to be getting the most out of your heart rate monitor. Don't be like a lot of those 6 million people that buy fitness devices each year and don't fully know how to use them to maximize your fitness goals. And then recovery times and training effect feel free to use them, they're probably, if you're training by yourself without a coach, they are probably a good thing to guide your training, especially if you're just looking at improving your general fitness, if you're looking to take things up a notch, improve your performance a little bit more, you've got a coach uh, and you're working to a specific training program, your watch does not know what the goals for the week are, It doesn't know what the goals of the session are. All it's doing is basing some assumptions on some pre-programmed algorithm. So don't take too much notice of them or take them with a grain of salt and know why they are saying what they're saying and how they are impacted by the training you're doing. I hope that is helpful. Send me through any questions about heart rate monitors. If you have anything else to add, Moving on to preparing for hot conditions when you're living in a cold environment. So this is something I've been working with a lot lately with athletes because it is winter here in New Zealand and there are a lot of athletes heading off overseas to the Northern Hemisphere to race in hot conditions. So how do you prepare yourself to race in hot conditions when it is the middle of winter where you live so some of the key things to understand before we take a look into this a bit deeper is that why is racing in the heat hard okay why is racing in the heat hard well when you have a look at it the body has an internal cutoff temperature Once your body temperature gets much above 40 degrees and remember we're starting around about 37.5 depending on what your pre-race cooling strategies were when you might get much above 40 degrees you get to a point where it's dangerous for your body we start to denature proteins and we essentially start to cook ourselves so if you've ever done any experiments in a sports science lab in the heat they will always stop the experiment or the trial when your core temperature gets to 40 degrees because above that temperature starts to get a bit dangerous and ethically they can't keep going, it's written in their safety procedures so to speak so as your body starts to get hot it gets to a point where it'll your body will actually start to Slow you down because you're getting too hot and it doesn't want to cook itself. You've got inbuilt mechanisms that will slow you down So that you don't continue to push yourself So when we are exercising in the heat, the body is working really really hard to keep our body cool to keep away from this temperature point that everything starts to shut down so if you can think about a radiator in a car and In our body, our radiator is our our blood and our skin. So when we start to get hot, what happens is our coolant, our blood, starts to get directed towards our skin. And this is why your skin gets red and warm when you're exercising in the heat. What happens is all the blood vessels in your skin open up and the blood flows to the surface so that the heat can then be Uh, exported out of the body either via evaporation through sweat or convection through wind flow. So as the body directs the blood to the skin that means there's less blood going to the working muscles which isn't ideal because the working muscles need oxygen. So as you direct more blood uh, to the skin to help you keep cool, which is one of the main priorities of the body, keeping cool so we don't cook ourselves, then less and less blood is in the muscles to fuel the exercise. So what we need to do is to improve the system, so to speak, is we need to put more coolant in the radiator. And that is blood volume. We need to expand expand our blood volume so that we have more ability to divert coolant to the skin to release the heat, but still have that blood going to our muscles where it's able to keep our you know our engine engine running, so to speak. So when we are looking at improving our ability to race in the heat through acclimation. What we need to do is improve our blood volume and it's not so much the red blood cells that we're worried about, it's the plasma volume, the liquid component of blood, the clear fluid that the red blood cells sit in. If you just improve your plasma volume or increase your plasma volume, it will improve your performance in the heat on its own without any increase in oxygen carrying capacity. So how do we do that? It's actually relatively straightforward. What we need to do is expose the body to a heat stress. And the reason we expose it to a heat stress and the reason that that increases plasma volume afterwards is that the body sweats and it's challenged from this hot environment and it says, all right, I need more plasma volume. And what it does is it produces more plasma volume. You've got more coolant for the radiator. And so how do you do that? The first thing most people think of when they think about trying to prepare themselves to race in hot conditions is to train in hot conditions. Well, that might not actually be the best way to do it because as soon as you start training in hot conditions, your training performance actually decreases. You get really hot, you have to slow down. It's it's uncomfortable, it saps your energy and it can lead to overtraining. So there's some really cool research that found that you can actually do your normal training session and then afterwards go sit in a sauna and that will actually increase your blood volume on its own. So you're actually separating the two. You're still doing your normal training but then you go sit in a sauna afterwards to get that heat exposure and that's been found to improve uh, over three weeks You can increase your plasma volume by approximately 7%. And that actually led to a direct performance improvement of 2%. Okay, So what you need to do is find a sauna. Now that's all very well and good because sometimes finding a sauna can be quite hard. And when you read the research, it's over about a three to four week period before a race. You need to complete about 10 to 12 sessions, which is about three or four a week. Now, if you're paying for a sauna, that can get quite expensive, and depending on the sauna location, it can be quite hard to be juggling training times and sauna bathing times as well. You need to be sitting in the sauna for about 30 minutes, okay? Now, the research showed that they did it just until the participants couldn't sit in there any longer and that averaged out about 30 minutes you can drink water while you're in there drink as much water as you like all you've got to do is sit upright in the sauna and stay in there as long as you can or around about 30 minutes or whatever you can handle so that's been shown in the research to improve performance if you can't get to a sauna what are some other practical things you can do well You can train in the heat, so you can get home, you can put the heat pump on, crank the fire up, put some extra layers on, jump on the wind trainer, get on the treadmill, whatever it is, and start slogging it out. As I said, that is not great, as it does decrease training quality to an extent. But as long as you're getting the training quality elsewhere, then those hot adaptation sessions do have their place, I believe and a lot of the athletes i work with this is one of the the techniques that we use because often people don't have free access to a sauna or you can mix it up you can try a couple of sauna sessions a week and then do a couple of your own home-based hot sessions so to speak the other way to do it is just when you're training outside put on a few more layers than is comfortable all right so One of the the key things you can do is by putting on a rain jacket is you create a little microclimate around the body. You trap that air in next to the body and it warms up. And you don't actually need too many layers on to feel quite warm. Obviously if you live in a really cold climate you may need more layers to get warm. But putting a hat on, putting a rain jacket on, it's surprising how warm and how quickly you get very warm and if you just keep it on as you start to get hot you're able to simulate that hot uh, hot climate around your skin and your body is going to adapt to that it may not be as effective as the sauna but at least it's starting to prepare not only you physically but mentally as well to handle that heat so if you don't have a sauna Try some home-based stuff with the fire or the heat pump going while you're training. Try some extra layers while you're out outside. And the other thing that's quite popular at the moment is hot yoga or Bikram yoga. And again, the research, you know, there's not much research specifically on it for performance improvement. But again, it's that same concept. We're giving the body a hot heat exposure and the body responds to heat by adapting producing more blood volume that sort of thing so it's well worth a try Uh, and even you could do it so that you train and then you go straight into a hot yoga class it's probably it's not it's not going to get you the same adaptations as the sauna bathing because you're looking at the difference of you know 30 to 40 degrees in a hot yoga class to a sauna is 90 degrees Okay, 80 to 90 degrees for your typical sauna. So the heat difference is a lot different. But what will happen is you'll end up spending longer in a hot yoga or a Bikram yoga class because they're usually about 60 to 90 minutes depending on what, you know, what class you're taking. So there are different options that you can do to help you acclimate if you are going to race in hot conditions. Some key things... Uh, around this is that following your hot sessions you need to make sure that you're replacing the fluid that you lose from training and from the hot session if they're two different ones and a good recommendation for this is to weigh yourself before and to weigh yourself after any weight loss over that time is fluid and what you need to do is replace 150 percent of that or 1.5 times of that body weight lost in a fluid uh, with fluid sorry that contains sodium and the sodium is really important to maximize that absorption of the fluid into the body okay and just some other safety precautions it's really important that if you feel faint or unwell during heat training that you get into a cool environment and cool yourself down uh, if you are going into a sauna, make sure that you've got someone in there with you. Okay? A spotter, so to speak, so that you're not going to go in there by yourself and pass out because of the heat. Also, if you've got a heart condition, like kidney disorders, or you're prone to fainting, you're pregnant, or you're on medication, or have any other health complications, this type of training is not recommended. Uh, and just Be super careful you undertake this sort of training at your own risk obviously Uh, but if you are looking to prepare yourself to train or sorry to race in a hot environment doing some sort of heat acclimation is highly recommended so that's pretty much all i've got for you today if you've got any questions, as always, please send them through either on an email or you can catch me over on Facebook or head over to exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash ask and send me through a voice message and I will do my best to get you an answer so that you can train hard, but most importantly, train smart. And that's all for episode 44 today.